We are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence, a prolific author internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature. We are very pleased and we hope you enjoy Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguished. I don't know if this is happening to you, but every time I see someone, I size them up for their viral load. As a philosopher, I have to wonder if this aggression is something new or has it always been the case? Has it always been there that the other is appropriated, as the philosophers say, as my killer? Or will the other deliver me from my misery? It's a question that philosophers, poets, and psychoanalysts have really examined with care and consideration. So in the next series, I'm going to discuss what it means to encounter the other as a cannibalistic threat, as something that's carrying a murderous intention. Of course, with the virus, we can't call it of course, with the virus, we can't merely consider this a matter of intentionality or that someone's out to get you, but it rhymes real well with paranoid anxiety, at least mine. So, hello everyone. This is Avital Ronell. I'm your philosophical handler, a kind of mediator, I duplicate that part of you that is philosophically inquisitive. Since childhood, you've been philosophically inquisitive, poetically attuned, very much addicted to language and the way it makes and breaks you. And you've been psychoanalytically primed. It's my responsibility to patch you through to questions and probes you'd like to conduct or have me direct as we face the unknown together and apart. I applaud your solitude, the capacity you've shown to vacillate between solitude and isolation, even desolation, and surrender to dark thoughts. I am responsible for putting together a survival kit in terms of anguish and for following you, accompanying you, being your companion species, if I may, through the anguish that you have been experiencing or connecting with or trying to ward off. Listen. An effective survival kit needs to involve all manner of catastrophic eventuality without overlooking impossible situations that one might not be able to address or dress successfully. Some wounds 
cannot simply be sutured, but have a way of escaping detection. Some wounds or symptoms attest to the transferal of pain landing in an almost arbitrary place that does not coincide with the origin of the trauma. We shall be on the lookout for such displacements. They are not in themselves unhealthy and can even be protective of you. Part of a roaming deferral of woundedness. So I'm trying to discuss with you what you might, without presuming to know, um, without presuming to annex or narcissistically um, cannibalize you or take on what I assume or project are your feelings, your reactivity, your repressive mechanisms. I can't presume that, but I'm not a total lockdown idiot. I have to, in, in the very act of addressing you, I have to imagine that some of you have difficult nights and insomniac anxiety, and some of you are doing things that maybe unconsciously are actually very healthy, healing, and protective of you, such as deferring or displacing the sites and centers of painful apprehension. So even Freud said, and he should know, that evasion or repression when it works is great. It's when repression doesn't work that it comes and bites you in the ass and shakes up your universe collapses your world, takes a big chunk of your pre-sups and pre-nups in your engagement with the world, and really offers a kind of restart mechanism that you have to climb back toward. So let me make that a little more intelligible, even though I am not necessarily a friend of intelligibility. I can do it. I come with footnotes and super titles. I want people to understand. I myself am obsessed with understanding. I have what my teacher Derrida called a hermeneutic compulsion, a kind of need to know. I need to figure things out as if my life depended on it. And our lives do depend on understanding not only the contingencies and certain aspects of what's going on, but the fundamental structures that made these things happen, make them blind us, make us listen to certain types of rumors. And nonetheless, to the extent that that is irresponsible, I'm not talking about ignorance. I wrote a big book on stupid. So, believe it or not, I am very, very nuanced in my appreciation of different types of stupefying, astonished responses, shutdowns, emotional breakoffs. So, I'm very um, sympathetic to moments of neurotic stupidity where you're dazed, you don't know what the heck is going on. How did this happen to you? What does it mean? 
I find stupidity to be one of the things repressed in a lot of philosophical um, advances. They pretend that stupidity isn't as crucial as it is. But when do we go stupid? When do we become stupid? And why is it that philosophy can't handle stupidity? Um, Deleuze, the great philosopher Gilles Deleuze, once said that literature, which has no fear, is therefore fearless about dumbness and dumbing down and dumb characters and stupid crashes against the walls of experience. That literature brought as a gift stupidity to the door of philosophy and philosophy in its arrogant presumptuousness just ignored it and said, I don't want to treat stupidity. But can we at all think about thinking and knowing if we don't deal with its dark underbelly, namely stupidity, which isn't always that stupid. But um, let me return to the main road of what I was trying to pursue with you today, which is that sometimes repression or getting what Nietzsche calls into a mood of um, Russian fatalism is a good thing. By Russian fatalism, he means learning from literature that sometimes things are so complicated and painful that you just drop into the ground and freeze over until you can call your um, mind to order and kind of defrost. So there are moments when you need to repress things in order to um, mobilize some of your uh, healthy capacities and instincts. So when pain, to return to the question of pain and all the philosophies and psychoanalytic probes, all of the poems that I'm going to consider with you and scan and read and analyze eventually, do ask basically, where does it hurt? What happens with pain? How do we handle pain? What are the pain blockers? When pain is displaced, and it's referred elsewhere, sometimes this is an elsewhere that you can handle. In other words, when you um, redirect your pain, or, and this could be very unconscious, or it goes elsewhere, it roams and lands somewhere, that allows you sometimes to manage your pain. So you may be focused on a marginal problem or obsessed by a situation that proves to be of little consequence. I don't know if this is happening to you right now, but very often when we can't handle something because its magnitude is overwhelming and crushing, then you do refer the pain or the symptom to another area of existence or experience or non-experience, and you can focus on it and manage it. So you may be focused on a marginal problem or obsessed by a situation that proves to be of little consequence, as I just said, and this displacement 
lets you work out your anguish on a mat on a manageable object. So um, something manageable, something you can see. You're not blinded by a, a kind of overload of anxiety. And this represents a psychic economy that detaches from a more ominous threat, this kind of um, displacement. I, for example, am currently obsessed with the way a friend and not even a bestie, but one of the morphs of friendship has betrayed me. So I have a friend or had a friend who messed with me. It confounds me totally. And the what confounds me is not so much her um, choices, which I wouldn't have made, but the hours and mind space I devote to dissecting the minor treacheries of this one-time friend. I suppose the displacement of my anxiety onto her banal maneuvers protects me from more serious problems, existential puzzles that threaten my ability to survive, more daunting roadblocks, and present incubators of anxiety. So I must be up to something when I waste my time and energy trying to figure out someone else's misbehavior. And that's what I'm, you know, what we're doing now in our um, modalities of confinement is reading us reading our situations or our failures to read or understand. And that's what reading is about. It's, it's like that technology that tests to failure. It's not that we want to wrap it all up and say we found a conclusive answer. Our job is to protect the question and the questioning being, which is more fragile than ever. In any case, let me go back to this real terrible ex-friend. So I'm trying to figure out why I would displace onto her banal maneuvers. And then I thought, well, maybe it protects me from what I should be thinking about. Or maybe it's an allegory, meaning it's it's not about her, her that I'm all worked up, but this is the way to approach, to get an access code without burning myself to more serious problems. So um, analyzing my friend's meanness and attributing meaning to her meanness occupies my mind with intensities that properly belong elsewhere. Is it a waste of time? Or is this displaced anguish a way of not being wasted by time, shredded by malignancy and the impersonal malice of a virus whose contours and intentions exceed my ability to calculate or calm myself? So, what I'm saying is, and I'm demonstrating, I'm exposing myself, I'm taking a risk by telling you what Roland Barthes called an autobiography, something from my so-called life. I'm telling you that I've been overly occupied 
and inhabited by um, an unpleasant occurrence among friends. I have a grievance against this friend. We haven't worked it out. And instead of trying to think the unthinkable, maybe she allows me to dwell with the thinkable, the banal, the ordinary, which life imposes on us. So um, we are in the face of something that exceeds our ability to grasp it, conceptualize it entirely. And very often this makes our mind or invites our minds to skip over to something that we can handle. Like, And even there, there's some unknown pockets. Being. Like a lot of people have decided to tend to plants, to plant lives and other life forms. Uh, this is already in Rousseau when he's all messed up and paranoid in his last exit text, The Reveries of a Solitary Walker. So he's solitary, he's messed up. He tends to plants as well. So this is something that people do. There are other uh, manageable areas of life. Oh, by the way, the tending to plants isn't just um, a minor um, trope. The greatest strivers and celebrity literary and poetic voices have ended up their fabulous rounds of duty, tours of duty, by tending to their gardens. And that includes Candide and Faust, was the first scientific um, maniac, brainiac, raving lunatic who signed a deal with the devil so that he could exceed merely human types of knowing. Now, that scientific impulse was also what launched Frankenstein, which I'll get to next time, how Frankenstein is part of an experimental disposition and very possibly links up with the labs that are said or rumored to bioengineer these viruses. We don't want to kick that to the curb. We want to think about that, not only as a possible truth factor, but as what it is that prompts us to speculate that this is an effect of scientific overdrive. This is very important because we're all involved in testing and other uh, scientific, um, let's say, redemptions that we're too invested in. I will explain why. Obviously, with our backs to the wall, we have to be invested. We can't be total idiots. But with all the scientific mobilization, we still don't know much for sure. Isn't that so? This in itself is a cause for anguish. The arrogant posturing going on at all levels of public communication and political management. Politics are either showing dependency on science, the scientific drive and the experimental disposition, or they're showing disdain, but still a relation to because disdain is still um, part of um, engaging something, if only negatively. So the relation or the lack of relation or the disturbance in our scientific 
epoch is something that we need to consider also because this is a technological communication. I myself am inscribed by the possibilities and limitations of technologies. So let me pull back to more philosophical and poetic precincts because you can receive messages about what's going on on the ground from sociological and empirical vigilantes from others who are very, very keen on and very good about nailing such monstrosities as Trump uh, and their mismanagement of what's going on. Let me stick to anguish, which is part of the title of these podcasts, and my survival kit is something that attaches explicitly to anguish. Now, Anguish philosophically is sometimes translated from German philosophical texts as care. And I do want us to be thinking about care, the kind of care we get, we are deprived of, we give, we want to give, we can't give. And what is it to care? Sometimes care of you, but I don't carry you. This is my um, chiropractor who repeats that. I don't believe her. I feel sometimes she does carry me, Alice Bear. So care philosophically comes from Zalga or even angst, which has leaked into the English language as angst. Everyone knows what angst is. It is taken from German, borrowed, the Germans had a premium on angst, on care and anguish. In the work of Heidegger called Being and Time, anguish is an exemplary disposition. It hits the pause button on our existence in order to reveal existence in its essence, which is it's groundlessness. When you are anguished, you are in touch with what pains you, the pained edges of existence. It's fine. Suddenly, life's timer is ticking loudly into a mute awareness. This is when you're at your most authentic, running out the clock, pinched by your time limit, your finitude. So, Finitude is a big and heavy word. Some of my friends, like Jizek, try to undermine it. Um, they're not excited about it, but you and Jizek, maybe they've changed their minds, but I see how you can get around it. Finitude is, um, it means that we're finite beings and that we're, um, we've learned the lesson of finitude on so many levels that I will try to explore with you. Now, being closed in upon, shredded by anguish, unsure of pure, not to mention print, you are on the brink of collapse. If you can hang on to that brink, the tremor of being, you are in your greatest authenticity. If we had time and Derridian expanses, Derrida used to talk to us for hours upon hours about these micrological blips on 
the screen of our existence. And we would thrill to that and trill to that. Um, I'm going to um, bring this baby in for a landing. And without accelerating too much, I do want to just make certain points stick if possible. So if we had time and Deridian expands this, I would want to think with you, what is a brink? What is it to be on the brink of, meaning kind of anticipatory disaster or possibly not a disaster? What kind of a temporal element is a brink? Now, if you're on the brink and you can hold yourself there, you are, according to a snap reading of being in time and Heidegger, in your greatest authenticity. Now, all these terms need to be verified, questioned, subjected to a severe shakedown. What does the philosophical vocabulary of essence, ground, authenticity bring to us today? Have they still the crucial validity uh, that they used to have, that they had even in Aristotle, who, who um, had them emerge in very significant ways, something like essence and energy and so on, that we're still um, connected to, but have the crucial, has the crucial validity of these terms expired? Or are they ready for repurposing by us today? For now, let us remember that anguish is part of a strengthening. It can be taken as an existential superfood capable of revealing things that remained hidden until now, untapped, repressed, and therefore prepped to bound back, deliver, and smack down. So if something's been hidden or unaddressed, that means it's ready to spring on you. That means you haven't been alert or thinking or, or waiting. But waiting for what? If you already know what you're waiting for, then it's going to bypass you. So let me return to anguish as a kind of um, prime modality of waiting. Um, we could argue about whether Beckett was the most anguished, the least anguished, or how anguish works its way through his texts when he's waiting for Godot. Anguish, in any case, to stick with the Heideggerian text momentarily, is disclosive. It discloses the what is. So what is happening? What is it that we're addressed by, torn apart by, called upon by? All you have to do is ask any premenstrual girl in the throes of mental anguish what she sees. Or ask any persecuted or terrified subject what they see coming at them from nowhere or from determined zones of aggression. And their relation to the world will be revelatory in ways that our emotional lockdowns and willed ignorance don't allow for. Anguish 
scopes the limits of survivability. And this doesn't rhyme with sunshiny cover-ups or political mendacity or telling lies and undermining our intelligence or our stupidity, but it opens us up to an exhilarating possibility at the limits of the possible, or it gives us an access that we might not have had. So anguish might be an access code to something we could not access, which would be an ecstatic experience of time, of nothingness. This is a big chapter in um, Heidegger's work uh, and phenomenological examination of our relation to being. What, and this would be also a little uh, provocative and problematic, which has never intimidated me, but we'd have to look at it closely and with care, because texts need care, concepts need care. Sometimes they need to be torn away from their problematic writers, but they need to be put in our custody and care nonetheless. So what would be the ecstatic experience of this dark time? Is there such a thing? What would be the absolute disastrous experience that extinguishes us or experience itself at this time? Now, I'm not prescribing anguish or that you live out your existence in a Bergman film and its many brilliant morphs in contemporary cinema. Rather, I'm offering a pathway for your anguish to fuel up on thought and poetic ways of existing. I'm trying to think how to say goodbye provisionally to you because I'm having a symptom. It's not easy to say goodbye, even though we've only met twice, but twice is um, already a commitment on my part, on your part, on the part of this tenacious virus, I'm trying to imagine where and how we should pick up the motif and experience of anguish again, and be very careful about some of the things that I said far too quickly. Nonetheless, I'm preparing ways to um, make a little sense. That's my concession, but not overdo it by reducing things and alarming us with the banality of sense-making. My next question that I'm queuing up will be, do we still have a world? I know that many of us are thinking, what will the world be like? How will it have altered, changed, been in some way revolutionized, cleaned up, uh, made to behave itself? All of those questions are important and should summon us to be very responsible to something like futurity and the, the way we want to take care and be cared for.
I'm going to back down to the very question of world. What is the world in its shattering? And how do we bind to something that may no longer hold enough meaning? So that's actually cheerful news. We're going to be afraid to venture into troubled areas of thought. And I welcome you to um, co-pilot and co-question and help me protect the question, no matter how outrageous it may be manifesting itself, no matter how outrageous it may seem to be at the moment of its emergence and manifestation. Take care until next week. Bye.